Good morning, you're listening to 2XXFM 98.3. The program is Subject ACT, where we explore local current affairs from an informed and curious gaze. My name is Becca Posterino, I'm the executive producer of the program, and today I welcome back into the studio Kristen Hopsaffel, who is the author, who is an author, social worker, and professional pet sitter. So welcome mm-hmm. once again to the studio. Thanks no for coming worries. in. I'm glad to be back. Thanks, Becca. And we also welcome, at the initiative of Kristen, founder and director of Compassion for Australia, Anastasia Gusios. Thank you so much for joining us from South Australia, Adelaide. You're very welcome, Becca. I just wanted to sensitively announce that or to offer our listeners a trigger warning. If any of the discussions raised in today's program raise concerns for you, perhaps you do want to tune out for 30 minutes if you are sensitive, particularly to the topic of trauma. But we will be also providing some information at the end of the program for services. So rest assured you will be taken care of through this discussion. And as I said, if you do feel that it's raised concerns for you, we will be offering that support at the end of the program. Anastasia, I'll start with you. Mm. You're a psychologist, obviously the director and founder of Compassion Fatigue Australia. Why do you think Compassion Fatigue needs our attention? Because I think it's been ignored for so long. It was originally founded in in the 1950s when a group of when some nurses were researched and then it was dropped. However, the symptoms of it have are still remain pervasive and insidious and people, good people, are becoming very sick and leaving the profession, taking expertise and knowledge and great caring with them. And so it's really important to raise awareness so that people and organisations can be proactive and look after themselves to be the best possible version for themselves and their clients. Where did your awareness of compassion fatigue and the fact that it was raised as an issue in the 50s and sort of lost attention in the the consciousness of of Australia and perhaps globally as well, where did you gain access to that? Why did you decide that that was where you needed to focus your attention? Three years ago, one of my biggest triggers was the death of my beautiful cat major he was Mm. a 16 year companion of mine and exactly at that same time I was asked to present a professional development workshop to a group of mental and medical professionals in remote areas on burnout as I was researching I came across this term compassion fatigue which in my 30 years of working with people I have not heard of As I was researching this topic, that's where I came across the 1950s research on the nurses, I also came across a questionnaire, which is the professional quality of life questionnaire, the psychological measurement tool for compassion fatigue, trauma, and also compassion satisfaction, what we love about our job. I took the the test and realized that I was suffering. And then I said, I'm going to actually offer this to these workers in this workshop and just see what these veterans have to say. And we're talking about doctors, we're talking about nurses, trauma counsellors in a very remote area of South Australia, and they had not heard of it. And I thought, this is really odd. And I became very curious about this topic to the point where I then started knocking on doors and saying, can I train your staff and can, and, and can I get some feedback on this? And I realised that there is a dearth of information out there to frontline workers and to organisations as well on how to protect the organisation and to create a good environment and also protect their workers. So that's how I got started and that's why I'm on a mission. Anastasia, also some of the research suggests that clinical supervision should be compulsory to carers. Would you would you agree with that or endorse that that sentiment or idea? I, I think that's a that's that's an aspect that 
is included in self-care. However, Becca, it's bigger than that. The research up until now has been saying, you know, it's the individual worker's responsibility to ensure that they get professional supervision, that they have their green juice, do their yoga, (laughs) eat their kale, um, you know, make sure you're doing all the things that you possibly can. And yet from an organisational perspective, we're still loading people up with unmanageable workloads. We are not talking about the emotional component of what is happening to the worker when client after client, and we're not talking just humans, we're talking animal workers as well, who are dealing with euthanasia and incredible cruelty of animals. What happens to their emotional self? So the organisation needs, and this is why we take a three-pronged approach, because from an organisational perspective, if this is your core work and your workforce is exposed on a daily basis to such traumatic material, then what is the organisation's responsibility to ensure that everyone is looked after and that Mm. an environment is created where safe and courageous conversations for nurturing and self-care can be had. So yes, clinical supervision and much more than that. So you mentioned a three-pronged approach. Mm -hmm. What would that include? An organisation's responsibility to acknowledge that compassion fatigue, vicarious trauma and secondary traumatic stress needs to be discussed. And that, you know, even when we're talking about recruitment and induction, letting the new worker know that these are some of the risks and also creating safe places where people can talk about what is going on for them, encouraging communications, working with teams to, for team building with honest input about what people are really going through, allowing people to grieve, offering mm. really good counselling services that do understand the impact of trauma. And then we look at colleagues. That's only a little snapshot I've just given you there. Then we look at colleagues looking after one another, just checking in on one another. Once we know what we're looking for, we can actually see it then. And then it goes to the individual to look after themselves. So everybody is creating an environment of openness and caring. And developing a culture, I guess, encouraging a culture, because really it has to start from the head of the organisation or whatever team is leading, it has to start with the head and that culture has to be cultivated and, and encouraged so that it's actually just a norm. It's not it's it's not something that em- empaths or empathic people do. It's actually something that is necessary to preserve the health and livelihood of people within the work organisation who, who deal with those absolutely traumatic and ongoing traumatic experiences within their work. Absolutely. Look, it's a given. It's a given that as a human being, when we're confronted with trauma, pain and suffering, this will affect us. That's an absolute given. And I agree. And our organisation needs to create a culture of care. And exactly right. It needs to start by being placed in the strategic plan. And leadership must role model authentic behaviour, not just palliate at lip service. And because the workforce knows that it's not authentic and then they are not free to take time out, have a mental health care day, change their shift, do what they need to do, ask for help, place boundaries around their work if leadership is not authentic around Mm. self-care. Three-pronged approach. There's obviously so many elements that need to be considered but I just want to also raise the issue of there's an economic if you want to be pragmatic about it there's an economic imperative to including this if you want to talk at that organization administrative level it's an economic imperative there's a waste of money if you do not invest in 
the care, the mental health care of your vital frontline workers. Absolutely. And, you know, Work Safe Australia has a whole, it's on my website. If you if you do want to see the economic cost, it's uh, compassionfatigue.com.au under facts for leaders in that there is, a, you know, 90% of mental disorder claims are attributed to mental stress. Now, people say to me, oh, if we just start talking about compassion fatigue, then everyone's going to go on work cover for compassion fatigue. Well, I'm telling you, they're going on work cover for mental stress. It's already happening. And I'm just looking at the list here, you know, $480 million for an organisation on the total claim of payment. That's a lot of money. It's a lot of money. So it's it's an issue that we need to recognise and start talking about seriously. Yes, it is. Kristen, I'd like to invite you into the conversation. You're sitting here as someone who's been through this. Was your organisation or organisations supportive of you? Well, I totally agree with everything that Anastasia says, the importance of recognising, raising the awareness of compassion fatigue. Just like you, Anastasia, it's not a term that I heard long ago. It certainly wasn't something that I learned about while I was studying, while I was at university. It was something that I heard after I'd been several years in the workplace. And I totally agree with what you're saying about the need for the culture to change. There's so many other things that can change, but ultimately there won't be any changes until we can see the culture Mm. making a shift towards we value our workers not just as people who can meet their caseloads but as in they are the front resource we will achieve nothing if we don't have our workers and if we don't support them as such then we're going to be doing some great damage not only to them but to some of the most vulnerable people within society. Some examples of what you've said about how we can support, some practical examples of what we can do in the workplace. You've mentioned things like accident incident forms and also I think I'm assuming they have like a similar version in um, South Australia employee assistance programs. Yes. Yes, EAP, which is great. I would suggest that that's only one part of a much larger approach that could be used. I would suggest the difficulties that you face with EAPs that often the um, workers are only approach them at a crisis point. You were saying before about supervision being so important. This is a lovely example about how supervision is something that occurs regularly with the people who can see you how you operate. They can see any changes in personality or changes in work style, any sort of personal issues which are coming into the workplace affecting your work. If you see someone in a crisis point, they're not getting all of that bigger picture. So that's why I suppose another reason as to why supervision is so important, preferably with the same person, as I say, who's able to observe any changes. A buddy system also can work quite well. I mean, you mentioned before the importance of colleagues. Often it is colleagues who are the first ones to see any symptoms of burnout and compassion fatigue. Possibly due to what you are mentioning before about culture stuff, you're a bit more willing to speak to a colleague than you are to a supervisor. And also they're the ones who are sitting next to you. You know, they're they're right in your face and they can see any, gee, there's a change of voice, uh, uh, different. They can hear your, sometimes if you're in one of those open plan offices, they can hear your phone calls. So they can hear, gee, you're kind of a little bit more tetchy with that kind of customer or gee, you've had that client over and over again. Well, that must be really frustrating. You know, that's the sort of support that you can get from a colleague, sometimes from a supervisor but less likely yes accident incident forms 
that's another one you mentioned before the importance of being able to record this information a lot of people aren't even seeing psychological injuries as in the same realm as a physical injury and they're not thinking oh that's actually something that's occurred that needs to be recorded in an accident incident form also again coming back to culture those same accident incident forms need to be received with the same level of respect and recognition with the same level of respect and recognition and without any fear that that accident incident Mm. form will have some kind of personal or professional ramifications for Mm. them which is obviously another reason as to why people might be hesitant to put in all that data which needs to be recorded we can't do anything without that data it's vitally important for our hr people can i just clarify with both yourself, Anastasia and Kristen, what are some of the signs of compassion fatigue? You've endured it, Kristen, so you're directly able to speak to that. What are some of the signs if listeners mm. are curious? Sure. Well, I suppose there's there's a few differences between burnout, compassion fatigue and trauma. Vicarious trauma, which Anastasia mentioned, is one particular form of trauma. Trauma-related illness, I suppose, is a, a broad overarching term. Compassion fatigue is something that often happens slowly, build up over time. It's often not any one particular incident or there might be a particular incident, which is the straw that broke the camel's back, but often it's something that's been coming for a long time. Physical signs like your tiredness, lots of muscle strains, injuries, things like that. Often skin complaints can be a big sign of psychological tiredness, you know, mm sort of that psychological fatigue sometimes you might see it can be quite difficult sometimes providing assistance to someone with compassion fatigue because sometimes they can be quite scratchy imagine you know what the word means compassion fatigue you've almost lost all of your compassion there's there's Mm. no compassion left to give so often that those people can come across as being quite have you heard the phrase energy vampire (laughs) (laughs) sometimes that's not working in their favor you know it's not they often are isolated because of those issues whether as someone in who's experienced trauma it's often a particular incident they can narrow it down to a particular time and it's something that's more pervasive than compassion fatigue compassion fatigue might be something which sort of expresses itself more on a behavioural level, whether as trauma would impact you more on a psychological and spiritual level. Mm-hmm. And your your view of the world is impacted. I think I mentioned in uh, the last yes. time here about someone with who's experienced trauma might have a very different view of the world as being unsafe, whether as the day before, before the trauma experience, they might have felt like the world was uh, essentially a safe place to live in. And the day after the trauma, they're feeling like, no, everyone in the world has some part to play in bringing me down. Anastasia, do you have anything to add Mm, to that? Yes, compassion fatigue is insidious. And see, that's why it doesn't get picked up. And um, I agree with what Kristen said. Uh, You you lose that sense of compassion. It's because it attacks the very core of what brought us into the work, and that is our empathy. So once we start to lose the empathy and the compassion for our patients, our clients, for the work that we do, that has a huge impact on us as people who see ourselves as people of service, when we can no longer give service in a way that we used to before. So what can also happen is then we get the cycle of self-judgment, self-criticism, and why aren't I? How come I'm not? I'm, I'm a terrible this. My practice is that I can't talk about it because I'll be judged 
because I feel such shame about it. Mm. And so we go round and round and round. And rather, because as we said organisationally, it may not be safe to say something, we can't step out of that. So what tends to happen is we become compulsive then about our work. So we work harder and harder and harder and become more and more exhausted and we lose more and more of um, our ability to get perspective on what's going on and that is a really dangerous place for us Mm. and our clients. Anastasia and Kristen, thank you so much for your insights. We're going to continue with this conversation. You're listening to Subject ACT Local Current Affairs Program. My name is Becca Posterino and we are in the studio with Kristen Zappel. She is a social worker, pet sitter and author. And we're also joined from interstate from Anastasia Gussius. Have I pronounced that correctly? Perfectly. I'm impressed. She's a psychologist and founder and director of Compassion Fatigue Australia. And we're really happy to have both of you on the program. Having this really important and ongoing conversation conversation. We're just going to go to a track now by one of my favourites and Kristen's too, I think. It's Kate Miller-Heidke and the song is The Last Day on Earth. Look down The ground below is crumbling Look up The stars are That was the track from Kate Miller-Heike, The Last Day on Earth. And you're listening to Subject ACT, Local Current Affairs Program on 2XXFM 98.3. My name is Becca Posterino and I'm in the studio with Kristen Hopsaffel. She is an author, social worker and professional pet sitter. And she is discussing the very important issue of compassion fatigue. And we are joined on the phone in South Australia with psychologist, founder and director of Compassion Fatigue Australia, Anastasia Gorsius. So thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. To continue with our conversation on recognition, I sort of want to move into recovery of compassion fatigue. Kristen, you discussed last week the gradual arrival of vicarious trauma as a result of compassion fatigue. You had the double whammy, I guess, which is a compounding effect. Can you tell us about the invisible signs that are harder to recognise? Oh, my goodness. Um, Well... Hmm. I would say the harder it's harder to recognize in yourself. Mm. Um, it's something that you can recognize um, more readily in other people, I think. But when it happens to you, you don't expect the level of sh- to feel the level of shame that mm. Anastasia was talking about before, and the overwhelming need to shut yourself away and not speak to anyone and not see anyone and oh my goodness we can't tell anyone that I'm feeling this way and that sense of what an awful person I am for experiencing this I was terrified of my workplace I think that's 
prompted those that experience of vicarious trauma and I was so ashamed that I was afraid I felt that if I was a good social worker uh, it wouldn't it wouldn't I wouldn't be afraid if I was a good social worker I would be able to focus on those who needed me my clients and I wouldn't be afraid for my own physical or mental safety and that's the way it felt at all you know it 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 felt like well I suppose you can almost have a conversation in your head one half of your head is saying no Kristen you shouldn't be feeling like this and the rest half of your head is saying but you do (laughs) if I was to go back to that time and talking about recovery what are the things that I needed to hear was I needed to hear someone to say your response to this is okay Kristen it's Mm. completely acceptable for you to feel afraid it's completely acceptable to fit for you to feel ashamed some level of normalization Um, but then by the same token I think I also needed someone to say Kristen let's not well let's normalize the feelings that you have but let's not normalize your reaction to it my reaction had been to quit eating so I at that time I needed someone to say that's not okay it's okay for you to feel afraid but it's not okay for you to quit eating what's important for you is to look after yourself and if that means feeding yourself resting yourself all those important aspects of self-care that's what I needed to do there wasn't a lot of care coming for me from other angles from the workplace and because I'd shut myself off there wasn't a lot of care coming from family or friends because I wasn't going to tell them about that either so that was all the more reason I needed to be able to look after myself in the immediate aftermath of what had gone on and it seems as if from your story and probably many others is that I think the culture failed you, really, yes. and it wasn't an intentional, we're not going to give Kristen or anyone for that matter what she needs. It's they, they simply don't have the tools. There's a certain ignorance, isn't there, and an yeah. o- oversight of what is actually crucial. I would agree with that. I would say that there is um, some oversight, you know, and that they hadn't looked into that, although I would say that, the, it, dare I say, it was convenient mm. uh, for them perhaps to have overlooked that because what the issue needed was time money resources and for any kind of organization which is cash strapped and time poor that's not what they want to hear you know they they want to hear some sort of a quick fix or give us something that will focus on yeah a bottom line yeah Anastasia can you speak Mm. to that who are vulnerable to compassion fatigue and and as Kristen says if that oversight is there because of an economic imperative once again how can we as a society as you know how can those structural I guess support mechanisms be more conducive to a healthy work environment the people that are vulnerable everybody who's on the front line are vulnerable those people who are in the direct line of fire of another suffering and trauma the other people that are also vulnerable are the ones that say perhaps work in admin you could be working in a legal firm you don't have client contact however you could be reading reports that are pretty traumatic mm. you could be uh, typing reports that are, are really quite disturbing and even though you may not suffer compassion fatigue you may be vicariously traumatized there's a, a whole trickle effect within the organisation. If I could just touch on leadership uh, Absolutely. As well before I answer your... What, I find, what I'm finding is that in many organisations, leadership has, has gone through the ranks as well. They've been frontliners. They have not been aware of compassion fatigue. A lot of them are burnt out and traumatised, and then they go into leadership. And one of the other harder to pick up, you mentioned that earlier, harder to pick up symptoms is a lack of complexity of thought. 
because you're so exhausted, you're so burnt out and you're so traumatised in your leadership position, you perhaps want to keep things as simple as possible. So the policies that come out are policies that are pretty cut and dry, black and white, and they don't have an emotional aspect to them because that is really too hard to deal with. And that goes back to perhaps what was happening in Kristen's organisation. We've got no money, we've got no resources. However, this is also really emotionally full on and we don't want to go there. What do you think we need to do at a structural level to protect our frontline carers who are experiencing or exposed to or vulnerable to compassion fatigue and, and other forms of trauma? Can I mention training? Sorry, I hope I'm not I'm not jumping over there. A lot of talking about leadership that you mentioned, Anastasia, trying to get leaders to actually do some training in how to provide supervision and what to look for. A lot of the time that's not standard. It's training that is a sort of a um, you can do it if you'd like to, if you've got time to. It's not something that every leader is provided with. No, that's exactly right. Because if we go back to what is to be done, this needs to be, first of all, the silence needs to be broken and leadership needs to, we have training for leadership, we have training for HR, we have training for induction, we have training for the workforce. And so it needs to be seen as an imperative in terms of put your oxygen mask on first, leadership, and find out what's going on. Start healing yourself. Start feeling better about yourself. Start practicing really authentic self-care and let that flow through the mm-hmm. organisation as well. Start allowing safe places for conversation. Don't victimise people if they're putting in their uh, accident forms or people that are taking time out. Ask what's going on. Have a workplace that becomes open. And I'm not talking, by the time we get to that place of compassion fatigue and leaders who have perhaps gone through the ranks, there is a hardening of emotion. And, you know, and this is not me coming across as touchy-feely. I'm a 30-year veteran. I've done forensics. I'm saying that we need to allow emotion back into the workplace. Mm. We need to allow spaces for positive emotion to grow, mm. positive post-traumatic growth. Mm. That, is a, that is a strong area now in, in positive psychology and neuroscience yes. that we can go beyond in terms of our resilience But we need to start somewhere, and that is a conversation. And just to get back to those structural changes, I really want to put an emphasis on that because it seems as if at the structural level that's where it's falling short because if the organisation is at that top of the apex, what can they do, in your view, Anastasia and Chris, and what should they be doing that they're not? Well, they're not not talking about it. They're ignoring it. There isn't Mm. even a conversation about it. Mm. I would also recommend, I mean, I touched on it a little bit before, but buddy systems, recommending a buddy system and and saying, as Anastasia said, talking about it, saying this is a buddy system for addressing compassion fatigue trauma. We've talked before about colleagues. So in that case, peer support, peer support debriefing is really useful. Coming back to the regular supervision, you know, I, I I feel like it's a word that I use all the time and I keep harking back to it, but... All the evidence is showing that that is our that's our our best defence. Really mm. good reg quality regular supervision, and it needs to happen as a priority, not something that can be moved from time to time, and by the same person. And qual is that quality supervision not bringing in someone who I read something about it or I've heard I know the word compassion fatigue, therefore I can provide some training. Clinical supervision is quite structured; it's quite specific. 
And a lot of what I was saying before about coming down to culture, making sure that those accident incident forms are received the way they're designed to be received. Those are the, talking about practical things to put yeah. into the workplace. We can also look at adequate salary. Yes. And, and, and more staffing. Yes, um, workload you know, is a big one. Putting caps on yeah. caseloads, speaking to yeah. people about what's manageable caseload. Disperse the load. Yeah. Yeah. And giving sufficient orientation, mm. you know, professional development training. You know, we also need plans for staff safety. The number of times I've worked in places where there wasn't even a, um, a buzzer for, what do they call those, safety buzzers, or security training or, or briefing on security mm. protocols. When you know that you're you're working in an environment that is that can potentially be quite safe, unsafe. Mm. There is so much to talk about, Anastasia, and I can't believe we've run out of time. Oh, have we? <laughs> we have run out of time <laughs> and some. I, I could seriously talk to you for you know another hour, and I think we should in the future because this is, as you say, it's it's a, a conversation that needs to come into our consciousness. So Anastasia Gossius, the director and founder of Compassion Fatigue Australia from South Australia in Adelaide, as we speak. Thank you so much for joining us on the phone Thank today. You Subject so much ACT. For inviting me. That's and a- if I can just say. If you pop onto our website and sign up for our newsletter, it's hot, hot, hot off the email press next Wednesday. <laughs> and how can people get in contact with you? Is that Compassion Fatigue Australia? Find no, you on Google? Yeah, compassionfatigue.com.au. Easy. Thank you so and much. Thank you. Thank you. It was great to hear from you too, Kristen. Thank you. Thanks, Anastasia. And thanks to Kristen Hopsaffel. She is an author, pet sitter and social worker who actually instigated this conversation and really great to have you in the studio again. Thanks a lot, Kristen. Thanks, Becca. You've been listening to Subject ACT, local current affairs program on 2XFM 98.3. Tune in each weekday, 8.30 till 9am or follow us on Twitter, Facebook and SoundCloud. Thanks for your company and enjoy your day. 